Good evening. Uh, tonight's reading, um, as Phil said, is Luke um, chapter 16, starting to read at verse 19. And if you want to find it in the church Bibles, it's on page 1050. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Thanks, Wendy. Let's just pray, shall we? Father, thank you that we've just sung the great divide you healed, because that's what we're thinking about this evening, this, this huge divide of choice between heaven and hell. And it's, uh, it's serious stuff, as Phil just said. So we just pray that as we look at it, uh, that you will challenge us and you will inspire us and that you will draw us closer to yourself. Amen. Well, hell is real, but the good news is you haven't got to go there. And that is really the main point of Luke chapter 16. So if you've got your Bibles handy, you might want to, to keep it open and, and follow through it. Uh, and Jesus is using this story as a sort of way of wrapping up a whole lot of other teaching and parables that have come before it. And he's summing it up by really saying, look... We face a choice. We all face a choice of two eternal futures. And we've got a picture to illustrate that. Uh, this is one of these sort of old-fashioned paintings, 1600s, by a guy called Franz Frangle, which I think is Frank Frank, but never mind. Um, and these paintings, this sort of painting, would have been... Um, put up in the, uh, the houses of rich people in the 1600s 
um, to remind them of the dangers of riches. Now, I'm not sure that's really the main point of this passage, but it is a picture that we're going to leave up because it was there to reflect on, and it's going to kind of take us through the story, take us through the passage. So, verse 19, there is a rich man. That's a kind of recurring theme we've had uh, through Luke. Um, and there is our, our rich man. Uh, we'll see why he is the rich man, but he's the one with the red hat. Uh, on my right, he's your right as well, isn't he? Um, not dressed in purple, as Jesus describes him. Uh, that was symbolic of uh, just being incredibly wealthy. So here he is in a, in a red hat and furs. I guess now he'd be in an Armani suit with a Rolex. Uh, the idea is, this is someone who's very successful, got everything going for him, just seems to be uh, life's going well for him. And actually, in those days, someone who God was apparently blessing. God would have been with this boat. That's why he was rich. And he lives in luxury every day, uh, which is what we're looking at here. And actually, that word luxury has a sort of connotation in the original of fun or, or, or merriment. Uh, and that's kind of what the idea is here. Uh, there's a party going on. Uh, there's fine wine. There's, there's wine, women, and song, as they used to say. You know, this is all, uh, all, all good fun. And there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus is not condemning having fun and us enjoying themselves. So that's the main focus of the picture. And then, of course, to the left, and we pick him up in verse 20, there's Lazarus. And of course, he's at the other end of the scale, isn't he? Uh, he's disabled. It says, doesn't it? He's been laid down. Uh, some of the translations say he was dumped. He was just slung down uh, at the gates. Uh, and there he is uh, in the distance. And you can see in the picture, actually, that's a kind of beating him up and chasing him off. Uh, that's not in our passage, is it? But what is clear is that the rich man treats him with, with contempt, doesn't he? Utterly uh, ignores him. So here's the rich man, looking like a, a, a million dollars, uh, and there's Lazarus, unclean, defiled, verse 21, licked by the street dogs, uh, uh, and hoping for the scraps. I don't know. Can you just see that little bread roll that's about to fall off into the pet dog's mouth? Just waiting for that sort of scrap to come to him. Then we get to verse 22. And uh, it's called the Great Reversal. Verse 22, they both die and the situation changes. So you look to the left and you can see Lazarus uh, he's you, he, you, just in the distance you might see there's an angel sort of looking after him but then he ends up in that little sort of glowy bit in the top left uh, that's supposed to be heaven uh, so there is Lazarus in heaven uh, with Abraham at Abraham's side 
And we don't usually get these references to Abraham like that. Uh, really, uh, it, it's sort of Father Abraham is standing in for God. It's, 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 it's a little bit of a, a strange uh, concept for us, perhaps. So effectively, when we read Abraham here, we can say it's God. And I suppose the first question that comes to mind is, well, what is Lazarus doing in heaven? What has he done to get to heaven? And the clue is probably in his name, because again, something that's lost on us, but would have been immediately familiar to his listeners, is the name Lazarus means God is my help. And so I think we're supposed to understand that whatever was happening to Lazarus, he was trusting in the Lord. Lazarus doesn't say a single thing, does he? All the way through the passage. He seems to be just silently resting in the Lord. So that is the destination of Lazarus. Uh, what about the rich man? Well, if you've got fantastic eyesight, if you're KO with laser vision, uh, you might just be able to pick out Lazarus, sorry, not Lazarus, the rich man dying. Can you see there's a little picture sort of above the main table? And if we looked at that in close-up, there you can see uh, the rich man dying. And his future is going to be very different. And again, you go over to the left-hand side of the picture to see their, their futures. We've seen where Lazarus ends up. But can you also see there in the distance, there's a nasty bonfire. That's a rubbish tip of a fire going on. And that is verse 23, where the rich man is going to end up. So the rich man, again, Jesus uses the word Hades. We'd use the word hell. Uh, 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 that's where the rich man is. And Lazarus is in heaven. And there are three points out of that story that Jesus wants us to hang on to, I think. And that is that hell is a reality. Hell is real. And it's irreversible. It's real and it's irreversible. But the good news is it's avoidable. We don't have to go there. So it's real, it's irreversible, and it's avoidable. We may think we're fine. We may think like the rich man did, that everything's fine with us on earth. And actually this isn't something we need to worry about. Well, the warning here is if we don't worry about it, we might spend eternity in hell. Now, this is kind of a difficult subject, and we don't like talking about hell, do we? Those of us who are Christians, we, we, we usually find it very difficult to warn people that they might be going to hell. And, and in some senses, that's right. We should find the whole idea of hell repellent. The whole idea of hell is 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 where God isn't. That's the opening scene from Genesis, isn't it? As Adam and Eve leave the garden. So it's, of course it's right that we should feel sort of repelled by the idea. And it's also just a bit embarrassing, isn't it? It just feels a little bit old-fashioned. It feels a bit judgmental when we start talking about it. And I suspect that's exactly how the devil 
wants us to feel. It's very interesting. When we get to the session on Alpha, when we look at, uh, look at the devil and we look at evil, and, and you're talking to folk who perhaps this is quite new to, actually, folk get it. It doesn't worry them at all. I think maybe we're more nervous than we need to be about talking about these things. People say, yeah, no, I get that. There should be a place of punishment. People do do some bad stuff. And, and there should be some sort of reckoning for those people. The difficulty in the conversation comes when you start saying, yes, but that might include you. That's where it can get tricky. But the truth is, what this passage is saying is that hell is a destination for anybody who chooses a life without God. Which is why we shouldn't make light of hell. Having said that, Peter Yusnoff, the actor, said, hell is Italian punctuality, German humour, and English wine. And we're not supposed to make jokes like that, because hell is a lot more serious than English wine. Another thing people often see, and you'll have heard this, people say, well, look, I I don't mind going to hell because that's where my mates will be. Have you heard that one? Um, If you can make out the lyrics of Bat Out of Hell, you will find that's what Meatloaf says. I'd rather be damned with my lover than be apart, he says. But, you know, the picture of hell right the way through the Bible is consistent. And it does, it does change a little bit. The descriptions change. The terminology changes. But all the way through, the Bible says hell is a place of, of isolation, of loneliness, of, of bewilderment and pain and regret. It's an awful and, and godless destination. Verse 23, that is what the rich man has discovered. And he's discovered that God is far away. And he says he's in agony or he's in torment. And the truth is that that is the desolate, the unpleasant future for those who don't trust in the Lord Jesus. So, Here's the reflective point, really, isn't it? Is, well, how seriously do we take this as we think about our friends and our family? I know for some of us it's deeply painful as we think about their future. But nonetheless, we do need to remind ourselves sometimes what their future might be. I don't know whether you're good on TripAdvisor. I'm not one for writing reviews. But, you know, whenever you want to go to a hotel or a restaurant, you look on TripAdvisor and it'll warn you of the the, the dreadful things you might experience. Michael McIntyre's famous sketch about scratchy towels in the hotel. It's funny, isn't it? We're happier to warn people about their holiday destination than we are about their eternal destination. But hell is a reality and it's irreversible. There's no, there's no second chance. Verse 24, the rich man asks for pity. It's very interesting, isn't it? He doesn't ask to leave hell. He doesn't want to be with God. He just wants an easier life where he is. 
And God responds with two reasons. Um, firstly, verse 25, he says, well, look, you've made your choice. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But secondly, verse 26, he says, you can't change things after you've died. He describes a great chasm. Now, we've got a great chasm up the road, haven't we? We go up to see Devil's Dyke. And you can't jump across Devil's Dyke. Uh, about a hundred years ago, you sort of could have done, because there was a cable car, wasn't there? I never understood how this works, but there was a cable car that you could go swinging across uh, Devil's Dyke. But not anymore. There's no way over. That's the image here, um, but in some ways it's worse. Verse 26 says, this chasm has been deliberately set in place. God has ordained that this life is our deciding time, not the next. Hebrews 9, 27 says, people are destined to die once, and after that, face judgment. There's no sense in this passage, is there? of either Lazarus or uh, the rich man having any negotiation about where they're going. It's not like the apprentice are all going into the boardroom to discuss their future with Alan Sugar. This is instant. As they die, they are judged. So it's pretty somber stuff. Hell is real and hell is irreversible. But the good news is that we don't have to go there. But it's optional. So the question is, well, how do I avoid such a terrible future? Those of you who are English literature students may know the answer to that, because uh, in Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte records Jane Eyre being asked that question when she's a child. How will you avoid going to hell, child? And her answer was, I must keep in good health and not die. Well, <laughs> this parable is saying something slightly different, isn't it? It's saying we all die and that we choose our future. But that choice is made in our hearts. It's not a sort of intellectual exercise. You know, the rich man in this story was probably supposed to be a priest. That's partly what the purple is to do with. Um, he probably had the head knowledge. But his problem was in his heart. And you can see that as you look at what's happening in this passage. You can see he's, he's self-centered. God is very much an afterthought if he's there at all. He doesn't need God in his life. Lazarus did, but this man didn't. Look at verse 24 and 30. And we begin to see as you work through that what the rich man's attitude is. Um, he's, he's terribly arrogant, isn't he? Twice in this passage, he asked God to send Lazarus to help him or his family. As so though God will just do as the rich man wants. Or certainly Lazarus can be sent to do what he wants. And fundamentally, he's selfish, isn't he? He doesn't want the world to know about the situation. All he cares about are his brothers. And just as an aside, that selfishness, that may be what the link is to that previous few verses are about divorce, the bits that, that Phil didn't have time to deal with last week. 
But that little bit about divorce, again, was all about selfishness, really. Cast off your wife just because it suits you. So he's arrogant, he's selfish, and he's hypocritical. I mean, he keeps calling Abraham his father, but he hasn't taken any notice of him until now. You know, if he had done, he'd have read something like um, Deuteronomy 15, where God says you are to be open-handed and not tight-fisted. Or Exodus, looking after the poor. But he's, he's ignored all that stuff, hasn't he? It was available to him. That's why Abraham refers to the Moses and, Moses and the prophets. That's kind of the Old Testament, the Bible, as far as we're concerned. So this bloke is successful and he's fun, but he's self-centered and godless. And the choice he made in life was a life without God. And that's what he got for all eternity. He's spending eternity with the person he loves most, which is himself. So how do I avoid that? Well, actually, this guy seems to understand that. Look at verse 30. He understands there is a need for repentance. He understands his need to say sorry to God, to change our ways. If someone from the dead, he says, goes to them, then they'll repent. So he's got the head knowledge. Repentance is the answer to my problem. Interesting, isn't it? He still thinks uh, it's God's fault. He still thinks God should have made more of an effort to tell people. But he's got the message. He knows it in his head. I have to repent and turn back to the Lord. And I think many people would probably say the same as this play. They would say, like the rich man, you haven't done enough, God, to convince me. Okay, I've got the Bible. I can look at the Bible. I come to Alpha. But actually, what would really make a difference would be if you came and saw me. If you're alive, then prove it. You know, come into my lounge or my bedroom or whatever and show me you're alive. Then I'll trust you. And so why doesn't Jesus do that? Why isn't he here now in front of us that we can see him physically? Well, here's the answer. God says it wouldn't make any difference said, you've got everything you need to know about me in my word. Jesus is saying, seeing a miracle like that won't change things. And we know that, don't we, as we read scripture, that the priests priests and so on didn't change their mind after the resurrection. And that's because when we turn to the Lord, ultimately, it's not just about our heads. It's not just about evidence. I mean, it's it's important. For some of us, it's more important than, than, than for others. But sooner or later, our hearts need to change. Remember the travelers at Emmaus as they're walking along the road after the resurrection. And they have that wonderful phrase in the older translations that say, our hearts were strangely warmed. It's a lovely phrase, isn't it? It's like the prodigal son we were looking at a few weeks ago who just runs into his Father's eyes, arms. We need to open our hearts to the love of Christ 
who loved us and gave himself for us. So it's good to have the intellectual arguments, but eventually we need to change our hearts. We need to make room in our hearts. Because what's on offer is a relationship, not just a ticket to heaven. And maybe sometimes, for those of us who are Christians, we just kind of need to remember that for ourselves. We have to remember, you can't argue someone into heaven. It's not like sort of persuading your children to go to the dentist because it's good for them. Sooner or later, we have to trust the Lord who knows people's hearts that he will do their work there. You know, Jesus does not say, come and sit an exam. He just says, come away, my beloved. And of course, that's what the rich man hasn't done, has he? He's sat there, being popular, well off, having fun. But he's chosen a life for himself and not including the Lord who loves him. C.S. Lewis wrote a book on hell. Uh, it's called The Great Divorce. It's a strange little book, really. Uh, but within it, there's this rather startling quote, which uh, we'll end with. He says... There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. But those who seek, find. And to those who knock, it is opened.